Hey everyone, this is Matt McDermott, producer of That's So Hindu. This week's show is the audio version of a side event HAF held at the International Religious Freedom Summit held in Washington, D.C. last week. The focus of the panel is the 1971 Bengali Hindu genocide and the ongoing challenges of the Hindu population in Bangladesh. Be aware there's some significant audio issues in the first quarter of the recording, but the audio does improve considerably and the topic is important. So have a listen. With that, here's the intro music. I'm a co-founder and the executive director of the Hindu American Foundation. Thank you for joining us today. The Hindu American Foundation is an independent, nonpartisan, nonprofit civil rights and human rights advocacy organization. We work on a range of issues uh, dealing with civil rights here domestically as well as human rights internationally. And we're glad to have you join us for this important conversation. Before we get started, I'd like to start with an indication. together in our approach be intelligent and nice, and there be no impossible choice. Only peace within peace between us, and peace us. So we're going to be talking about a very important topic, about the fight of Hindus and other minorities in Bangladesh. So today we're focus not just on remembering those who survived the 1971 Bengali Hindu genocide, but also highlight how the persecution that began 50 years ago continues to reverberate for not just Hindu minorities, but other minorities in Bangladesh. We're joined today by an esteemed panel, and moderating our conversation today is HAS Director of Public Policy, Tanya. He serves as the chairman of the International Religious Freedom Roundtable South Asia Working Group and prior to joining HAF, here we go. <laughs> prior to joining HAF, Tanyal worked as a political consultant and was a candidate for Palm Beach County Commission. He spent over a decade successfully advocating on Capitol Hill on a wide array of human rights international religious freedom, U.S. foreign policy, and appropriations issues. Danielle was selected as a 2018-2019 fellow with the Anti-Defamation League Last Leadership Institute, as well as a 2019 fellow with the James Madison Institute. He holds a BA in political science from Florida Atlantic University, as well as an MA and a graduate certificate impacts and political management George Washington University. No to the speakers. This has a mind of its own. So with no further ado, Tanya. Thank you. Can everyone hear me? Great. Um, my name is Manu Shaki. It's great to be here to talk about what happens uh, in a country that is founded on the ashes of genocide uh, and where we are today, 50 years later. Uh, this is the 50th anniversary, not only of Bangladesh's independence, but of uh, the nine-month genocide, uh, which is really interesting to me as an Armenian-American and descendant of genocide survivors, 
um, because I will admit that I didn't know too much about what happened in Bangladesh when I first started uh, working at HAF three years ago. And I heard about it, but I didn't know the, the gravity, the scope, the depth, uh, and it brought back a lot of memories for me personally. And then I found something really interesting too when I read uh, Gary Bass's book, uh, The Memoirs of the Ambassador to Bangladesh, the U.S. Ambassador to Bangladesh, uh, Archer Blood, um, which the name would be more ironic, uh, who contested um, and objected to U.S. policy regarding U.S. relations with Bangladesh at the time, in the middle of the genocide as it was unfolding. And that reminded me of Ambassador Henry Morgenthau, who was the ambassador of the United States to the Ottoman Empire, and how he objected to U.S. policy with regard to the Ottoman Empire at the time while that genocide was happening. So it was kind of uh, interesting to discover that there was um, basically a, a Hindu ambassador Morgenthau. Um, there was another U.S. Uh, ambassador that stood up for human rights, for religious freedom, uh, and for the independence uh, of, of the people who want to determine their own destiny. So I'm going to stop there and let the panelists present uh, what happened in 1971, what's happened since 1971, and what's going on in Bangladesh today regarding religious freedom. So first, we're going to hear from Tupali uh, Party, who's the Director of Human Rights for the Hindu American Foundation. She holds an MA from the University of Hawaii at NOAA, uh, an MST from Oxford University, and a Master's in Philosophy from Syracuse University. She was a 2018 recipient of a student research board with which she studied gender, religious practice, and media extensively. Our second speaker will be Dr. Sachi Dastadar, uh, who's a distinguished professor at uh, the State University of New York, founder and chairman of the board of the India Subcontinent Partition Documentation Project. He comes from a refugee family uh, from what was then East Pakistan, Bangladesh. Uh, and has devoted his life studies to the partition of India and the subsequent changes in India, Bangladesh, Pakistan. He's held uh, 33 schools for the poor and orphaned in Bangladesh and India. He's built 14 schools there in the dorms. He's the author and editor of over 22 books and journals. And he holds a bachelor's degree in architecture from California University, India, and uh, Indian Institute of Technology, a PhD from Florida State, my home state. Uh, our third speaker is Dr. Richard Bankin. Uh, he is one of the foremost activist scholars currently working to save Bangladesh's declining Hindu population. His on-the-ground research and activism in religious freedom and defending persecuted minorities in Bangladesh has led him to testify and present his findings before Congress and relevant U.S. government agencies. He is a distinguished writer and author of The Quiet Case of Ethnic Cleansing the Murder of Bangladesh's Hindus, which provides verified evidence of anti-Hindu atrocities in Bangladesh, the government's complicity in them, and the rest of the world's deliberate silence. He holds a doctorate from the University of Pennsylvania and has held numerous awards, uh, positions, faculty positions, uh, and he has served as an expert witness in U.S. asylum cases. So he's actually working on some of these things that are happening right now. So I will turn it over to Deepali to start. I will manage the slide next. So I'll look at her. Don't look at me at this point. Um, and the presentation. Uh, and we'll get started. Deepali, please. Thank you, Daniel. Um, Article 2 of the Genocide Convention states that, among other things, genocide means, quote, any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy, in whole or in part, ethnical, national, racial, or religious group as such, killing members of the group, causing serious bodily harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of, of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. I'm going to give a very brief history of the genocide in 1971 today. And so before I start, I want to give the caveat that the issues on the ground were far more complex than that which can be summarized here. And I hope we will use our web portal, which I'll introduce a little later, as a resource to learn more about the genocide from many different perspectives. Genocide does not begin all at once, but entails a gradual shift of thoughts, practices, and laws, which normalize violence against a group over time. 
as we all know, as we look back and the history of these atrocities across the world landscape. Between the 1947 partition and the 1971 partition of Pakistan and Bangladesh, there was consistent systemic and physical violence against Hindus. Precipitants of the 1971 genocide include anti-Hindu pogroms and an attempt to make Urdu the national language of all of Pakistan to the disadvantage of Bengalis and other groups that did not speak Urdu. Additionally, more than 300,000 people in East Pakistan died in the Mullah cyclone on November 11, 1970. West Pakistan declined to send aid, leading to even more death. All of this momented a movement for the secession of Bangladesh. After a democratic election on December 7, 1970, Sheikh Mujibur Rahman and won an overwhelming majority of seats, 167 of 169. The Awami League campaigned to form a separate country of Bangladesh, which would have led to the peaceful secession of East Pakistan from West Pakistan. On March 26, 1971, Bangladesh planned to declare independence. So on March 25th, in the late hours of the night, in anticipation of this event, and in a show of force, the Pakistan military began Operation Searchlight, the first military action to suppress the Bangladeshi independence movement. This began the 10-month Bangladesh Liberation War. On the first night, the Pakistan army targeted Hindu neighborhoods and villages, starting first at Jagannath Hall, a Hindu dormitory in Dhaka University. Between 5,000 and 100,000 people were killed in the first night. The then U.S. Consul General in Dhaka had this to say about the beginning of the genocide, quote, they were not political refugees. They were just four very low-class people, mostly Hindus, who were very much afraid that they would be killed solely because they were in the end, approximately 3 million people were killed, but much research is needed to actually understand the scope and depth of the violence that occurred and to understand the number of those that were actually killed. In addition, at least 200 to 400,000 women were raped during those 10 months. Many were continuously raped in rape camps for weeks or months at a time with limited food, ability to move freely, to even bathe, and afterwards, they were outcasted from their communities. Although the Bangladesh government lauded them as heroes, they continued to bear the scars. And still, they bear the scars, their children bear the scars, and their grandchildren bear the scars in this intergenerational trauma. By November 1971, approximately 10 million refugees, a majority of whom were Hindu, had fled to India. Prime Minister Indira Gandhi's officials noted that Pakistan hoped to reduce the number of Hindus in Bangladesh by, quote, driving out Hindus in their movements. Seeing this devastation, Senator Edward Kennedy of the United States said this in his November 1971 Senate report. Nothing is more clear or more easily documented than the systematic campaign of terror and its genocidal consequences launched by the Pakistan army on the 9th of March 25th. Hardest hit have been members of the Hindu community who have been robbed of their lands and shops, systematically slaughtered, and in some places painted with patches marked age. After nine and a half months, approximately, India entered the conflict. Under the guidance of Prime Minister Indira Gandhi, India went to war with Pakistan to liberate Bangladesh on December 3rd, 1971. Although the war lasted only 13 days, it was the impetus for the surrender of Pakistan and the liberation of Bangladesh. But the legacy of the genocide is still felt today in the continued violence against Hindus in Bangladesh. Here you'll see General Niazi of Pakistan sign the instrument of surrender, bringing an official end to the 13-day Indo-Pakistan War and the 10-month Bangladesh Liberation War. Bangladesh became a country on December 16, 1971. Next slide. I'd like to recall the numbers of who were affected once more. Although we cannot recall all the stories in the short amount of time we have here today, over 200 to 400,000 women were raped, approximately 10 million people were displaced. Many of those went to India, majority of those went to India, a majority of those were Hindu, and at least uh, approximately 3 million were killed, a majority of which were Hindu. 
On the Genocide 1971 um, webpage, that is the portal uh, that was blocked by the Pakistan uh, government, um, you will find a digital archive. And that digital archive is for survivors of the genocide to record their story. We must remember the loss. We must celebrate survivors because that is how we stand for Ahimsa and saying them again loudly. If you are a survivor, please do go to Genocide uh, 1971 and share your story. We also have, go to the next slide, a community art project. If you are an artist and you can sing, paint, write poetry, or create art in any form, please create and submit your art to remember those lost in the 1971 genocide and celebrate the existing survivors. The community art project is for all, and we hope you will submit art which can be used to raise awareness about the genocide. You can go to genocide1971.com. I encourage everybody to educate themselves about the genocide. This is the first step in making sure that these atrocities don't occur again in any community. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. This is an extremely painful, stressful, difficult topic for me and my indigenous families censored by the war, American subcontinental and poor democracy media but not the secularist Muslim Still, I will end with some positive notes. Contradiction, of course. I'm focusing from 71 till today. Let me mention that since British partition of India and partition of Bengal province, about 50 million, 50 million Hindu minorities missing from 1947 to 2001 census. And over 3.1 million Hindus have been killed in that period mostly by Pakistani genocide. See, Empire's class casualty, Indian subcontinent's vanishing Hindu and other minorities, book for data. Yet Pakistan and rest of the world have protected the killers and cleansers. Bangladesh wants to prosecute killers, I am with Bangladesh. But let me briefly remind you of Pakistan era, slide two. Bangladesh independence started, as you heard from Mark, with killing of Hindu students and staff at Dhaka University. These pictures taken by me. Slide three. Destruction and mass killing at 19th century Ramna Kali Mandir in Dhaka. I'll come to that. Slide four. Reminds us the word, slide four reminds us that extermination of Hindu was used in 71. Slide five. Reminds us how a charge gave away 50, 85 Hindus for slaughter by Pak army. No one says sorry for that. Tiny Christian and Buddhist minority were not killed in 71. <clears throat> On the very first year after 1971, Bangladesh independence during the presidency of nation's pro-secular father, Mujib, there were attacks on puja celebration of our mother Durga. Thugs were not arrested. Slide three, back to three. No one knows why Father Mujib bulldozed the reminder of the ninth century Ramna Kali Mandir of our black mother Kali that was destroyed by Pakistan army, killing over 100 priests, devotees, and poor sheltered there. Commission was headed by an attorney, Khan, a Muslim. Christians and Buddhists, as I mentioned, were not attacked them. Uh, but secular Muslims were. Slide six. In 75, when the father of, the fa of his family were massacred, Institutional oppression of indigenous Hindu minority and apartheid began like Pakistan era. Killers of Sheikh Mujib then changed the constitution deny Hindus equal rights, led by Bangladesh dictator General Jia. Although 90 to 95% of victims of Pakistan army and Bengali Islamist genocide at Bangladesh independence were Hindus. Our homes, shrines, deities, and businesses were destroyed or confiscated. Post-1971 confiscation of Hindu ancestral land Businesses, religious properties continued via Pakistan Enemy Property Act, which allows confiscation of indigenous Hindu land 
without notice and compensation by declaring Hindu minority as enemy of state. They just have to do that. In 96, I met with the Bangladesh land minister who said over 1.5 million acres of Hindu land has been confiscated in 1980s alone, plus tens of thousands of homes and businesses. On July 1, 1968, another Bangladeshi dictator, Eshad, declared Islam as official religion, beginning re-energized oppression. Eshad and other Islamists want India to remain secular, so that colonization of India by anti-secular Islamists and Islamist cleansed minorities can continue, like my families. Slide seven. I was a first-hand witness of 1990 and 1992 pogroms. When I traveled from village to village, for no reason, tens of thousands of Hindu homes were burned, properties confiscated, forcefully converted, shrines destroyed and desecrated. I saw six shoshans, cremation areas, destruction. I can go on what people told me what Hindus should do if they die. Slide eight. Hindu minority paid with their lives for America, Europe, and more. As you know, destruction of 9-11 brought pride among many Muslims, including Bangladeshi. In October of 2001, pro-Islamists came to power in Bangladesh with that pride. A large number of Hindu homes were torched and individuals abused. Noted journalist Shahriya Kobir, a Muslim, edited 3,000-page, three-volume book highlighting atrocities. You see the cover of the book. Dr. Taslima Raslim, a Muslim, wrote a book called Lodja or Shame, highlighting plight of a Hindu family for which she was driven out of her country. Even Bangladeshi Indian Hindu refugee and communist Marxist government of Indian West Bengal state drove her out of the so-called revolutionary city of Calcutta. The first building we built in Bangladesh for the poor in 2001 came under attack. I visited many places after 2001 pogrom. I met with a member of parliament to protest the pogrom and attack on the new building. The other picture you see a Jatibhanga village where Pak army killed at least 3,800 married Hindu men, making their wives widows for life. This is a yearly memorial service that you see after 1971. Slides 9 and 10 show Bangladesh Hindu minority come down from 22% in 71 to barely 8% now. The loss of population is larger than 160 nations and territories of the world. Who showed any concern? Bangladeshis, Muslims, Indians, Americans, Europeans, UN? How many articles New York Times, London, or LA Times wrote? Slide 11. Because of lack of time, I'll just show a few recent examples of hundreds of hundreds of such atrocities take place each year. Why don't we support pro-secular forces? This is an example of Biroj Baladevi, dark poor family. She was ordered to go home her, her, her property was not larger than this. When she said, why should I go to India? I don't know it. She was cut into small pieces, seven of them, while everybody's watching so that they could be stuffed in a drum. So when I reached Dhaka, I, a Muslim friend of mine rushed to that place to say, please offer a prayer there, which I did. So this is cutting pieces into everybody's watching. So why didn't you rebel? Next is Shikanta Lakshmi, slide 12. This is a boy who touched my feet. He was ordered, his father was ordered to give his land, 400 year of old home, free of charge. When they said, why? Young boy stood first in school and college, was beheaded. Head was sent to the mother, saying this happens to Hindus. I wrote to the prime minister, I wrote to Congressman Crowley, that something has to be done. Crowley wrote to, Road to Prime Minister. This is happening. Why America? We are not protesting. Slide 13. Nikhil Talukdar, Gopangal. On the same time where we have, we had George Floyd. This Talukdar was murdered by a police. Not one was arrested. Why Indians didn't protest? I don't know. Slide 14. Murti destruction and confiscation of land. It goes on. Slide 15. Is 20 year 2012. 14 and 2012, temple destruction and land confiscation go on. Slide 15. In the past December 2020, as France president said he will protect speech in an entire Hindu village was set on fire with 100 homes torched and three temples destroyed plus more. Did France or West come to rescue? Why not? Why should our families pay for their statement? Our lives not matter? Personally, I help secularism. 
slide 16, this year, 2020, another Mandir temple destruction. Slide 17, confiscation home by enemy property. This is, this is the guy who, whose idea brought Bangladesh. His property, he was beheaded. His Pakistan army, he and his son was tortured, killed. Then Bangladesh Sarkar after independence declares his property enemy property. For me, it would be like George Washington's property home declared enemy property in America. Nobody protests. This is why this is happening. 18 and 19, we have some books. I brought a few copies of books and journals. If anybody wants, please let me know. And let me with a positive note, slide 20, is that that you see is our ancestral home of 15th century from our family are driven out. And you see the guy with a beard who walked into our home as the pogrom was taking place. And on the other side is a, a statue of, of Vishnu. I saved it and re-energized it. So it was rededicated on 15th of March this year. So with that, I will end. I can go on, but as you know, I got many stop signs. Thank you. Richard, go ahead. My colleagues have done an excellent job and I thank them for that. And I also thank the Hindu American Foundation for giving us all an opportunity to learn about this terrible situation, but more importantly, to do something about it. Because in the end, isn't that the only thing that really matters? So I'm not going to talk that much about atrocities. I'm really going to focus on our problem. That's right, our problem. Because as you heard from, my co from our colleagues, this quiet case of ethnic cleansing has been proceeding apace for decades with the international community, including my great country, the United States of America, sitting by in silence. Uh, for those of us who have families that survived other Holocausts and genocides, and those who didn't, we have to be absolutely appalled, absolutely appalled, and that we can't sit by idly with them. We can't sit by with them and like them be okay with the murders, the gang rapes, the child abductions. I've been going to Bangladesh for almost two decades on the ground, villages and cities. These things occur regularly. Every day I've seen them for myself. And it seems that the diplomatic corps is more concerned not to anger Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina and her minions than with stopping the slaughter of the innocents. So as I said, I'm not going to talk much about atrocities, but I do want to give you just a taste of what it's like to be a Hindu in Bangladesh today. I left Bangladesh about eh, that far before the pandemic. And though I haven't returned, I maintain daily contact with my associates and my contacts at all levels of Bangladesh society. And I took a close look at Bangladesh's first lockdown period, which ran from the end of March, the end of May. And what I found was absolutely appalling, but not surprising. In that 66 day period, so in a number, 66-day period, I was able to document, and I use very rigorous standards, I was able to document 85 serious multi-crime incidents targeting Hindus. Again, 85 in 66 days. While the government of Bangladesh enforced social distancing and other infection-reducing uh, infection methods, it didn't do so when they were violated to attack Hindus. Now, the United States has a, a good deal of, of leverage and actually do something about this. And that's what I want to talk about. And that's what I bring to Capitol Hill. Last several years, Bangladesh has undergone something of an economic miracle. Really amazing what's happened with them. But that economic miracle is dependent on just a few things. And I want to talk about two of them that we have a great deal of responsibility to do something about. First, that economy is driven, the engine that economy is the export of their garments. And guess who their biggest customer is? That's right, us. I'm sure you've all seen shirts with the labels made in Bangladesh. 
And that drives our economy. And every time we buy one of those, and I've stopped, every time we buy one of those, we are, we, we are supporting ethnic cleansing. We are supporting the destruction of Hindus and Hindus. And by, by the way, uh, Dr. Abul Barkat, one of their most uh, renowned, one of the most renowned scholars at, at Dhaka University, and not a Hindu, has predicted if things don't change, Hindus will be gone from Bangladesh before mid-century. So it's not hyperbole when we talk about this stuff. But we can do something about it. I never use the word boycott, but individual consumers can, can recognize that perhaps if they want a garment, they buy one that says made in Honduras or India or somewhere else. Perhaps at some point, trade sanctions are appropriate. But that's a little bit down the line. One way or another, we should take a moral position and stop this slaughter, which is what it is. When I looked at that, 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 uh, that, that lockdown period, I saw all those things. I mentioned murders, gang rapes, child abductions, and some incidents so horrendous as Sachi described, you could only call them pogroms. And yet they go in. Not one of these crimes, not one was prosecuted and punished by the government of Bangladesh. And that's their complicity. And the fact that we never raise it with them, though, you got to figure if I can find it, certainly uh, our CIA and government with much greater resources knows the same thing. Without us doing anything about it, that makes us complicit as well. But that's the first element. The second element of their economy that we have a lot of leverage over is, you know, that um, Bangladesh is the number one country in the world for providing and receiving money for UN peacekeeping troops more than anyone else. I don't know if you know that. And by the way, who, who pays, who pays for them? I know I do and you do and you do. And anyone who pays taxes in the United States is, is essentially funding this money and also uh, helping Bangladesh uh, keep uh, employ a, a whole lot of people. Now, we don't have to send in the Marines. And although I'd like to see trade sanctions, I'd like to see us do something at the UN to say, geez, why are we paying people to keep peace over there when they can't keep peace at home? But we don't have to do that. If they know we're serious, they will act. I'll give you a good example. I was in Dhaka during the 2007 military coup. And afterwards, I asked several of the military leaders why they finally acted. And to a man, they said to me, they acted because they were afraid that they would be barred from providing peacekeeping troops. I heard that again and again and again. That was a military coup. If, if that prospect can lead to a military coup, if they think we're serious, I think we can save lives together. So I'm hoping that that's what results from what, what, what happens here today. And I want to close by reminding someone, by reminding everyone of something. Former President Bill Clinton has said multiple times that the greatest regret of his presidency is not acting sooner in Rwanda. And that if he and his international partners acted when they had the information they could have saved 300,000 lives. Imagine that. Now, I'm sure none of us want to be sitting here a decade or two from now, wringing our hands and saying, gee, if we only acted sooner. Thank you. Well, I know that's a lot to digest. Uh, we could probably be here for more than one hour just on what happened in 1971. Uh, and even more so on what's happened since, but we're trying to cover a lot of ground and give you uh, a scope of where things started and some of the things that have happened since and what's going on right now. Um, so we're going to turn it over to our panel discussion now. Um, we have about 20 minutes uh, to go here. So uh, that's what that was our goal. We want to have uh, a good discussion here and we want you as the audience and the viewers online uh, to get a good uh, idea of what the, the, the knowledge that these panelists have. Um, and before I get to that, we have set up on the side of the room um, some exhibit panels uh, that 
showcase some of the imagery. I mean, this was 1971. This wasn't that long ago. Um, there was photographs uh, taken during the genocide, and some of those um, we've printed and, and showcased there on the site. So I encourage you to look at that, um, and we'll share that with our online viewers as well. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and get started, and I'm going to take uh, the moderator's uh, liberty here and ask the first question. We'll ask a bunch of questions, um, but the first one's going to be for everyone. Uh, and then I want to go uh, into, into um, individual questions. So my first question is going to be for all of you. I want you all to answer this. We're now in 2021. It's an important year, 50th anniversary. In January, it was reported that the Bangladeshi foreign minister had conveyed to their Pakistani counterparts that they needed to apologize for the atrocities committed by the Pakistan army in 1971, and that it was, quote, important to, to restoring bilateral relations, that it was the reparations of uh, repatriation, I'm sorry, of Bangladeshis in Pakistan uh, is necessary to resolve division of assets. Uh, and in fact, Sheikh Hasina herself directly told the Pakistani envoy in December of 2020 uh, that, uh, that the Pakistan's genocide can neither be ignored nor forgotten. What is your reaction to that? I'll start with Dipali. That's a pretty heavy question, Tanya. Um, I'm not sure, you know, uh, in all honesty, you know, I, 3 million people have died um, in 1971 alone. And afterwards, so many um, suffered. Um, over 10 million were displaced, 200 to 400,000 women were raped. The solution to that, um, to me personally, doesn't seem like it can begin or end with an apology. I think there's a lot that needs to be done. Um, recently, there was a conference on this genocide. Um, and one of the scholars put it really well that we need researchers to go in and they need to give us access to the archives um, to be able to understand the genocide better. Um, the erasure of this violence is another form of violence. It's normalizing violence against Hindus. It's imagining that there was um, that the birth of Bangladesh and the, the however you want to say it, the partition, the Indo-Pakistan war, the Bangladesh liberation war, whatever term you want to use, um, was not fraught. Um, so, so we need more information is what I would say. And, and we need access to the archives. And I think that's the first step um, to, to there being peace um, between the countries and, and, and for supporters of both of the countries um, to be able to, to support not only those in those countries, but in the diaspora. First, I, I, I want to mention that I'm very honored that Bangladesh government invited me in their 50th anniversary commemoration. I was invited, I spoke virtually on the, for the genocide. I spoke on the 25th of March. Uh, with a very high officials present. So they know my work. They also, so I'm very proud that invited me. Sure, first is apology, but but I, from an outsider, would want a lot more than that. This is this was a Bengali genocide within the primary was a Hindu genocide, within the they killed the uh, secular Muslims. So we want parallel action. And also the amount of assets they, they took us from us, we should demand from Pakistan that they do that just the, just the way um, German reparated uh, Israel. So I just don't, apology is beginning, but, but I want to go further. Thank you. I must have tunnel vision because the immediate thing I think of is why don't we place the same demands on Bangladesh? You're supposed to be friends with us, then stop killing your minorities, stop killing Hindus. Recognize that the first step to healing as anyone in a set in a 12 step program knows is admitting you have a problem and that's what Bangladesh has to do. But, and I will go to the wall on this, the Bangladeshi government will never do the right thing because it's the right thing, but they will do the right thing 
if we make it in their interest to do the right thing. And that's one by saying you want to keep selling your garments here. You want us to keep funding your peacekeeping troops. And you got to acknowledge your problem and start doing something about it. Well, Richard, I'll stick with you. Um, well, isn't the current Awami League ruling party preferable to us? Um, and I say the collective us here in, in the West and human rights activists, but isn't the ruling Awami League, you know, preferable um, as opposed to the Nationalist Party of Bangladesh, which has had terrorists in their coalition the last time it governed? If they're out of office, I mean, it's kind of the devil you know and the devil you don't know. And I know we're getting to the geopolitics here, but that's also part of what this discussion. And I'd like to get your, your analysis of that. Oh, I have to tell you, and I believe me, I, I've spoken with high officials in both parties. Um, I'm really glad you asked that because that is a uh, that's a false distinction that has been making the rounds in the West, including in Washington, for decades. There might have been a time when the BNP or Bangladesh Nationalist Party was associated uh, with some of the groups in its coalition, but and I'll give you just. Two examples of why that's crap. <laughs> um, Dr. Albert Bakat, who I mentioned before, and again, let's, let's remember, he is not a Hindu, but he is certainly one of the most respected and renowned professors at Dhaka University. He's done multiple studies on the Vested Property Act, which equates to the seizure of Hindu land. And it was very interesting. I read the study and he breaks it down between the BNP ruled errors and Awami League errors. And there's no difference except who gets all who gets all the spoils. It depends who's ruling. It doesn't depend on whether there's a good party or a bad party. They both do the same the same thing. And I and I also can tell you the, the BNP is so desperate to get back into power that uh, they'll, they'll throw over more, more of uh, the, the Islamists if they have to, to get that power. I'll also give you another example. I mentioned I was in, uh, in Dhaka, the capital, in 2007. They were having elections. And around that time, Sheikh Hasina, then the leader of the opposition, made, agreement, made an agreement with the uh, Khalifat Bangladesh Majlis, one of the most retrograde and radical groups in Bangladesh at the time, and the agreement said, you support us, we'll put you in our government. It's really about, uh, it's about real politique. It's not about one party being good, one party, one party being good, one party being bad. Um, it's both two sides of the same coin. Thank you, Richard. Uh, I'm gonna turn to Deepali next. Um, why should we remember the genocide in 1971? Wouldn't it be more useful for Hindus in Bangladesh if we focus just on the persecution that they're facing today? Yeah, I think uh, that's an important question. What's the point of remembering something in the past? Um, and I think, you know, especially given all the atrocities that are happening currently in Bangladesh, we can ask ourselves that question. And when I've spoken with those in the, you know, from the Bangladeshi diaspora that have the refugees that have come to the United States. Um, there has been a lot of hesitation in talking about this violence, um, to be frank. And so I think, and, and so, you know, talking about it publicly, to be clear, we'll talk about it personally, one-to-one, -one, um, and, and the details are devastating. Um, but there is a lot of hesitation of speaking about it publicly and that fear um, has not gone. It's still here. And it is, it is something that, you know, that encourages me to speak out despite not being, you know, a, a Bengali, you know, heritage myself because of the genuine fear that many have communicated to me of not wanting, um, to speak out, to not wanting to speak out with their name associated with the words that they say to even remember the genocide, to even say that this happened and, and, and the whitewashing that has happened of the genocide um, in, in the years that have followed. So that there, it, there is a lot of intergenerational trauma that needs to be addressed. There is a lot of violence against Hindus in Bangladesh today that needs to be addressed. And the normalization of violence that occurred um, 
because of this genocide against Hindus and other minorities in Bangladesh, including Christians, Buddhists, um, that can only happen if we acknowledge what happened in 1971. The scale of the violence is so great that we must acknowledge it in order to move forward. That's a, that's a good answer. Um, and, and something that, that anyone here who has ever come from a family of persecution understands that there's kind of two frames of thought. You either can't stop talking about what happened to you or you don't talk about it at all because the trauma is so great. And, and I know from my own experience, and I'm sure some of you have heard some stories and maybe if you come from a family, you've asked, well, why doesn't uncle so-and-so talk about what happened to him? Why doesn't my grandmother mention, you know, where she comes from? How come I don't know her story from, you know, beyond a couple of years ago? Um, and that's something that I think we can, we can really, yeah, go ahead. Add one. Give him the microphone. Add one proverb. We have a proverb saying, unless we learn from history, history would repeat it. So exactly that happened in India-Pakistan partition took place. We didn't learn. That's why Pakistan had another partition, Pakistan and Bangladesh. So we don't want more of these, you know, because with that comes massacre and life. That's all. That's a really interesting perspective. Um, there's a gentleman in the back there. I want to get his question with the glasses and the green shirt. Um, you have an interesting question. So that's an excellent question. I'll open it up to the floor. Um, cool. Please use the microphone so our, our Sorry. viewers on. Can I add? Can True. It's a very important question. But I would ask, ask you this question. I have authored many books. Actually, uh, this book also raises that question. Why, why America? What do they teach in Pakistan, Bangladesh, or India? Our history book completely censors, including Calcutta. Where I, I, I went to school, they wouldn't teach this genocide. They don't teach it. And, and the left was even worse, more communal than others. They censored all of this. So before blaming America, I would blame ourselves first. We're going to keep the conversation. Mind, I'm let's the let our panelists, <laughs> I'll let our panelists answer. Yeah, and we'll um, keep... I'll, I'll give it to you in just one second. Uh, Richard Kaka, uh, I um, I just want to briefly note that, you know, I understand what you're saying because there was military aid to Pakistan in that time period that enabled this violence. So absolutely, um, there is an element of, you know, being involved. Um, and that's exactly what, Rich, you know, uh, Gary Bass talks about in his book, um, The Blood Telegram. And, and uh, it, it's something that definitely um, has not been included in American textbooks, but, you know, um, as Dr. Dasadar, uh, you know, aptly noted, it's, it's, it's been erased from history textbooks the world over. And I think that's an important part of the erasure of the violence um, and, and why it's so important to bring attention to it today. And that sure. leads into your first answer about needing more research. Go ahead, Richard. Uh, yeah, OK, my, I, I, I wouldn't doubt that there's some of that. We, people certainly don't like to publicize their sh the shameful parts of their history. However, however, you know, we, we've seen. Uh, we, we've seen movements to to change that. But I want to mention something very general, and I have to tell you what happened to what happened. To, it's very what happened to Hindus in Bangladesh very close to my heart. I mean, I'm I'm there multiple times a year, uh, but um, I know Hindu American Foundation regularly has to fight anti-Hindu textbooks and. Uh, and some of the Jewish organizations, I'm Jewish, some of the Jewish organizations, uh, we also have to fight something similar. And the pro a problem, a problem we have, a problem we have 
sense that uh, there seems to be a growing uh, force in our country that would rather see textbooks reflect what they want to reflect and what their ideology says rather than the truth. So I think I, as I said, I agree, it's got a part of it that has to be guilt over the, sh- you know, what, what we, the shameful fact that we were complicit in it. Uh, but I think we have it's part of a, a you know a big problem that we see in our textbooks, and um, I think uh, we need to uh, really think very hard of, uh, about what it means that uh, we would rather give our children false information than the truth, and what we possibly could be thinking about them too. Thank, thank you. you, Richard, and thank you for your question. Um, the well, I want to say that. You know, what H, two things that HF does is education and advocacy. And as part of that, and actually as someone who walks into congressman's office and has to talk about these issues, um, education is so important because if that's done before I walk into that congressman or congresswoman's office, then that saves me a lot of time. <laughs> I don't have to explain so much. Um, and so that's very important. And in that regard, HF has actually developed a Bangladeshi Hindu genocide lesson plan that parents... Um, if you're a, 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 an American parent uh, and you're watching this online, you can go to uh, HinduAmerican.org, go download our lesson plan and share it with your kids, uh, teachers and administrators and, and, and give them this knowledge. Because uh, I know that a lot of uh, educators don't have the time to develop their own curriculum. And so if you help them and give them some of this information, that does help. Um, and I know there's so many instances of, of history that are not in our textbooks. Uh, and that's a great uh, a great question. Um, Sachi, I want to ask you, since I've asked everyone, I haven't asked you directly yet. You know, we don't hear a lot about Bangladesh in the American media unless it has to do with garment workers working for Walmart. Uh, but there's obviously a lot more going on there. What role has American, Western, or even Indian media played to highlight the need to protect the democratic rights of indigenous Hindu minorities or even secular Muslims in Bangladesh? This is a real, real sad part that all of this press have sense. I use the word censor. It's happening. Like I said, Biraj uh, Baladevi, she's cutting to small pieces. There's not a footnote in Indian papers or American papers. Why? Our lives not matter. I mean, uh, you, you saw Shikanta beheaded and sent. Why New York Times? If it happened in Calcutta? or India, New York Times have five articles. Why this racism? I call it a different form of racism. I can go on. I'm so, so I've authored many books on this. Um, so, but it is extremely serious problem. And I have, I have no words to explain. I'm so, you know, unhappy with, I, I have written hundreds of letters to Times and London Times, New York Times. They won't print it. And I don't have not done it in last 10 years. So I call that censorship. Yet they are, they are publishing completely false narrative. By the way, I'll add I have a half a go minute. Ahead, so in 2001, I mentioned when, uh, when pro-Islamists came to power with 9-11 pride. So there was attacks on Hindus. Many, many people from New York went to New York Times. So what happens? They sent to Barbara Crossett. Barbara Crossett write one page next to the editorial page with a glowing tribute to Khalid Azia, the Islamist leader who came to power and slaughter is going on. Not one footnote. Then after many debate, an Indian American, Bangladeshi Indian American girl, last name Sengupta was sent after year, one year. She doesn't write even a footnote writes glowing story about, you know, I don't, I don't care. So this is how much struggle you can do. On the other hand, they are setting world opinion. Why it's happening, it's up to all of you to figure out. Thank you. And oh, I won't, well, yeah, I'll let you say that, but I want to point out, you know, um, you may hear a lot of panels. In fact, we've heard a lot of panels here in Washington lately on um, on Afghanistan that didn't have an Afghani on it. And we wanted to make yep. sure that you know that when we have a, an event and when we talk about persecuted uh, minorities, we have representatives from that community speaking for themselves. And I think that's an important distinction um, that any viewer of these panels should go to and try to identify and listen to, because I can tell you 
I think it was like four or five panels on Afghanistan in the last month and not one of them had an Afghani on it. Um, so I want to thank you, um, Dr. Dasidar, for coming up here. But go ahead, Richard. The very good man. Um, just to give you a, a, a broader context, how it doesn't stop with the New York Times or with textbooks, show you how out to sea we are. And I got to we got to look at ourselves, how out to sea we are. The most recent U.S. State Department reports on religious freedom and human rights both identify Bangladesh as a serious violator. In December of 2020, remember, this is 2020, an incredible show of bipartisanship. Both the House and the Senate passed anti-blasphemy law resolutions, which called out just a few countries, and Bangladesh was one of them. So we have all these people saying Bangladesh bad, Bangladesh bad, you know, they're, they're issued. Yet, if you look at the recent re- recently released report by the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, you can look high and low and you won't see Bangladesh. Not only is Bangladesh the only country once part of the British Raj that is not designated as a country of particular concern, it's not even on their special watch list. Tell me where the logic is in that. Either the left hand has no idea what the right hand's doing, or these reports are done for political reasons. I'll take the gentleman's question and then I'll end with one last because we have about four minutes left before we conclude. I'm Peter Cook. I'm executive director of the New York Times. Very Um, Yeah, I'll take that question. Thanks so much. Um, I think, uh, you know, in the 1971, you know, Hindu genocide, you know, it's there were a lot of victims. And at first the killing was indiscriminate. And, um, you know, then, you know, it was Muslims, Christians, Buddhists, Hindus. And then it was, you know, at the same time targeted. And, and it was and, and there's a lot of evidence of that. Um, but in terms of, you know, what is India doing? I think this fixation on India is, you know, is very troubling. There are Christians in Bangladesh that are that are struggling today. So because we're focusing on Bangladesh, I'd rather ask about Bangladesh itself. I think the the focus on India, um, it's one of the only, there's only two Hindu countries in the world, India and Nepal. And there are many, many countries where, um, you know, many minorities groups are persecuted. Certainly no government is beyond reproach. And certainly there are cases of violence in India today. But when you, if it's an issue of comparison, um, then I think we need to be focusing on Bangladesh at this time because of the the Christians, Hindus, and other minority groups that are facing daily instances of violence. So if we can just change our framing a little bit and make sure we're using the same measuring stick, no matter what country we're looking at, I think that'll change the conversation. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but there's a lot more we can talk about after this. Thank you. We only have about two minutes right. left. I so, just, I just have, I have one question I want to ask. So go I, ahead. Real quick, quick, quick question back. I would like the people to talk about India to tell me over the last year, the last 10 years, how many Muslims and Christians have been slaughtered for their faith in India? And I guarantee you, I have a lot more in Bangladesh and Pakistan in terms of Hindus. So again, as Dipali said, no one is perfect on beyond reproach. And we absolutely should have. But if we are going to, if we are going to prioritize where we need to spend our cap, our political capital, I would say it's to save the lives of the innocents in Bangladesh. Can I, I think this is an important question you raised. I would love to be in the shoes of Indian Christians, Indian Muslims. I have been ethnically cleansed for over 50 million. How many Christians have been driven out of India or how many Muslims have been? Moreover, before I UN, India has created three Christian majority nation states. How many states, Jewish majority or others America has created. Besides, those three, 
I, I support one orphanage in Mizoram. Mizoram, the group that has not been converted, they call Bruce, they were driven out by Christians and they declared it Christian state. And I go there and the area where I support is, is, is a Buddhist area. They are complaining that they're not building a road there. Not only that, even in, in um, neighboring uh, Meghalaya, which is a Christian majority, they have recently election, they have declared Hindus not to be able to vote. So before we do that, it becomes complicated because Sachi, I sorry. like to be in their shoes. Thank sure. you. Sure. We all, we all know that, um, that uh, sometimes you, you have to take a lens off uh, to, to look at what's really happening uh, in these countries. And we hope that we've taken um, some of the lenses off and you've had a really good chance to look at what's happened in Bangladesh in the last 50 years. I'm sorry, I don't have any more time for questions. They're about to kick us out of the room here. Sure. Uh, well, we can, we'll take it afterwards with our, with our guests. Please feel free to engage with us. Check out our, our slides. Uh, visit our website, hinduamerican.org. And thank you. Namaste, everyone. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please take a minute and leave us a nice five-star review. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at www.hinduamerican.org slash donate. And before you go, a quick message. The Hindu American Foundation proudly supports We Can Do This, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services nationwide COVID-19 and vaccine education campaign. Our community has been hit hard by COVID-19, and many of us need help in getting educated about how we can get vaccinated. Our organization is working hard to ensure our community has access to important information in our fight against COVID. Learn about COVID-19 vaccinations and get help scheduling your vaccination at vaccines.gov. We can do this. Thank you.